Well, it's a great pleasure to be in this venue. Don't know if, if I've ever spoken in such a remarkable venue before. Uh, I hope to do it justice. What um, my topic today is nothing less than what is the most you can hope for in life? What is the most you can hope for for your children? What is the most a nation can hope for? Now, the answer to that's not at all obvious. I grew up in the medical tradition in which Freud and Schopenhauer told us the best we could ever do in life was not to be miserable. That, that the object of human progress, the object of psychotherapy was to reduce suffering to zero. I'm going to argue today that that's empirically false, it's morally insidious, and it's politically a dead end. That there's much more to life than zero. When I, 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 a good part of my life I was a therapist, and what I was taught as a therapist was if uh, I could help her bring all of her sadness close to zero, her anxiety close to zero, her anger close to zero, I would get a happy person. And I never did, even the times that we did pretty well on getting rid of dysphoria. What I got was an empty person. And that's because the skills of well-being, skills of having positive emotion, being engaged with the people you love, having good relationships, having meaning in life, are something well over and above the absence of sadness and fear, the absence of anger. So I'm going to contend today that well-being is a real thing, and it's more than the absence of ill-being. That you can have cancer, you can be depressed, and you can have well-being. And I'm going to suggest that it is a plausible individual, national, corporate goal to have lives full of well-being. So that's uh, the theme of what I'll be after today. And uh, let me tell you how I'm going to try to go about it. So I've done the first part. I've said what we're after, well-being as an individual, national, planetary goal. To do, if, if I had suggested something like this 30 years ago, uh, you wouldn't be here and you would be laughing at it. And the reason is uh, all we had was the word happiness, a tremendously vague word, means very many different things to different people, and it couldn't be measured. But now we have good measures of the elements of well-being, and I'm going to uh, present a... Um, theory of, of what is well-being. In fact, uh, the way this is organized today, the first question is why well-being, the second question is what, and the third question is how to build it. And then finally I want to talk about the future. So I'm going to talk about what is well-being, and I'm going to argue that it has five elements. And uh, an element for me is defined by something that free human beings pursue for their own sake. And I'm going to argue that there are five of these things. The first is positive emotion. It's what you typically mean by happiness, the hedonic views of uh, uh, well-being. 
We can't stop there, though. So if this was just about smiling, being merry, being cheerful, this wouldn't interest me very much. And the reason for that, uh, technically we call those states positive affectivity, and they're bell-shaped. And that means right now, 50% of the people in the world uh, are not cheerful and merry. Uh, they're not smiling. It's highly genetic. It's about 50% heritable. And most importantly, we, um, the best we can do with smiling, being merry, being cheerful, we can raise it by about 5 to 15%. Um, and in fact, uh, you know, I spent most of my life working on misery. And people would ask me, why didn't I work on happiness? And the reason I didn't, there was a very influential study in the mid-1970s by Phil Brickman in which he found 14 people who had won the lottery. And he was able to track their happiness. And it turned out you get very happy when you win the lottery, and it lasts for about three months. And then three months later, you're back to where you were, back to your curmudgeonly self. It turns out you can't change a curmudgeon into a giggler. But you can get those of us who are in the lower 50% of positive affectivity to live at the upper part of our envelope. So the first element in PERMA is positive emotion. The second element, the E, is engagement. Engagement is time-stopping for you when you're completely at home, when you're in flow. And as I look around, it looks to me that about 60% of you right now are one with what I'm talking about. The, the other 40% of you are having sexual fantasies, by the way, <laughs> well known. Uh, the, the, the third element, the third element of uh, what free human beings choose is good relationships. And there have been discoveries about good relationships. Lots of stuff I didn't know, and I'll tell you a little bit about that. The fourth element, the M, is meaning. Meaning and purpose in life. Uh, belonging to and serving something bigger than you are. And the fifth, the A, is accomplishment, achievement, mastery, competence. Human beings pursue this for their own sake. Uh, so then I'll ask, uh, given those elements, uh, can we measure them? And uh, I'll talk a little bit about the industry of questionnaires measuring well-being, but there's something brand new under the sun. Questionnaires will not exist in about 10 years, and I'll tell you why. Uh, so after we talk about measurement, and by the way, I'm going to say measurement is much more than an academic issue. Um, if you don't measure the right thing, you don't do the right thing. If national policy, if your individual goals, what you measure is how much money you make, then the policies you're going to make will be about making money. If your goal is well-being, PERMA in life, if a national goal is more PERMA, then it turns out there's an invisible hand that operates. That if, if you think about, uh, you, let's say you decided that your goal in your marriage was to maximize the PERMA of your spouse. Well, the ways to do that are local. You're going to think of the things that maximize her engagement, the meaning she has in life. So once you start to measure well-being, 
your life changes. The goals change. You invent things. So I'll talk about the invisible hand, but then I'll talk about, I spend a lot of my life, um, a lot of my early career was testing psychotherapies and uh, drugs and asking, do they work in mental illness? And the way we do that is to do random assignment placebo-controlled testing. So starting about 10 years ago, I began to ask the question that if you took the 200 exercises from the Buddha to modern pop psychology that people have claimed make people happier, and you run them through random assignment, placebo-controlled testing, which ones really work? Turns out there are about 10 of them. I'll tell you about three or four of them. So what I'll do is go through the question of how to build PERMA, uh, and I'll try to do two things. I'll tell you um, something you didn't know about it. You might think that your grandmother and your minister knew all there was to about well-being. It turns out that uh, there are about 20 things that I didn't know when this field started that the science has discovered. So what I'll do is I'll talk both about uh, new findings in well-being and also what we know about how to build it. Um, so I'll do that for positive emotion. Uh, I'll talk about positivity ratio. We'll do it for the notion of being in flow, how you can have more flow in your life, and the notion of signature strengths. Uh, we'll do it for relationships, and I'll talk about active, constructive responding and uh, marital therapy, new forms of marital therapy. Uh, we'll talk about meaning, and I'll contrast having pleasure to doing philanthropic things. And I'll talk about um, accomplishment. I'll talk about the notion of grit and how much more important self-discipline is to academic success and success in the world uh, than IQ or talent, roughly about twice as important statistically. Um, then I'll be coming to the end. I'll talk about the question, well, this is what we found with individuals. Can you do this in an organization? Can you do it in a whole school? Is there such a thing as positive education? And there's quite a lot going on in the world, and I'll tell you a bit about that. And then I'll tell you uh, about the United States Army, which decided four years ago that it would try to create an army that was just as psychologically fit as physically fit. And I'll tell you the story of that. And finally, I'll conclude with a, a notion uh, that we've, we've missed the mark on what prosperity is. That as, as uh, the world becomes more and more wealthy, we move from just ending poverty, just ending disease, to a different question, a question of building well-being. So I'll talk about the politics of that. So that's what we'll do in the next 45 minutes or so. Um, this is a dashboard. The uh, uh, icon up here is meaningful. There, there's no one number that tells you how an airplane is doing. There's a dashboard. Uh, and depending on your mission, you pay attention to the petrol, the wind speed, uh, the altitude. Human flourishing is like that. There's no one number that tells you that you're flourishing. There are five elements, and I described them before, each of which is measurable. Oh, by the way, I should say uh, a lot of my work has been to give this away. So uh, everything I talk about I have a website that's free called authentichappiness.org. 
It has the 20 leading tests of positive emotion, sense of humor, sense of meaning, and the like. So about 3 million people have uh, registered at the uh, uh, website and taken the test. So if you're interested in where you stand as a 40-year-old Australian female on kindness, actually go to this website and find out. Uh, the second is engagement, when time stops for you, as I mentioned. Uh, the third element is good relationships. The fourth element is meaning. And the fifth element is accomplishment. So given that theory of well-being that says there are five things that free human beings strive for, uh, can we measure it? And uh, the good news is uh, after 20 years of work on this, we can measure these about as well as we measure depression, schizophrenia, and alcoholism. So these are psychometrically respectable. And most importantly, it turned out that Phil Brickman was wrong and that uh, while happiness, smiling, being merry, may have an upper limit and you can't boost it beyond the fringe of the envelope, um, engagement, good relationships, having more meaning in life, having more accomplishment, turn out to be buildable. That is, you can actually have more of these things in life. And I'll tell you what, what we know about that. So let, let's go to measurement. So part of what I'm after these days is the notion that well-being, PERMA, is a plausible national goal. And uh, uh, this is work of uh, uh, Felicia Hopper, who spends half her time in Australia, and Timothy So from uh, China. What they did was to uh, take 23 European Union nations, and they took the PERMA criteria, and they asked what percentage of adults are flourishing by being high in the PERMA criteria. And here are the results they have. Um, as we almost always find in uh, all surveys of life satisfaction, happiness, and well-being, Denmark is at the top. It's got about 40% uh, of Danish adults are flourishing by PERMA criteria. Um, the UK, Germany, it's about 18, 19, 20%. And importantly, the former Soviet Union are between 5 and 10%, by and large. This tells you a couple of things. It tells you, one, uh, it is measurable, and there are big differences. And so it is plausible, uh, given these differences, for nations to make public policy around building PERMA. Um, so those are questionnaire studies, but there's something new under the sun. Uh, Prime Minister Cameron has decided that he would phone, he, we now phone 200,000 people every three months in the UK, and we ask them, how happy were you yesterday? Uh, was yes, did you do something meaningful yesterday and the like? And uh, Mr. Cameron, uh, very importantly, is not only measuring this, I'm a member of his statistical committee, but he's also said he would hold himself accountable for the success or failure of public policy by changes in well-being. Well, it's, it's very expensive to phone 200,000 people uh, every three months. And even worse than that, if I ask you, how happy were you yesterday, there are lots of artifacts about your answers. And there's a new way 
of asking this question. It's free, and there are quite a few of us who are trying to measure in real time the well-being of the entire world. And here's the way it's done. Um, we take Twitter, Facebook, Gmail. We de-identify it so you don't know who uh, is sending it. And it turns out there are about, in English, there are about 45,000 words and phrases that are permaphrases or anti-permaphrases. So you can actually look at changes in well-being by just combing through billions of words every day. And that's what our machines do. And indeed, we believe this is more valid than questionnaires. It has fewer artifacts than questionnaires. And it's essentially free. Um, this gives you just a sample of what we're finding. So these are about 100,000 people on Facebook who took personality questionnaires. And uh, about 10,000 of them are highly neurotic uh, by personality tests. And about uh, 10,000 of them are what you would call emotionally healthy, emotionally stable. And we ask, what do they say? Well, uh, the bigger, by the way, th th there's a lot of information here, but uh, the bigger the word, the more they say this relative to any other group. So highly neurotic people say, I'm sick of things, I'm alone, I'm depressed. Uh, low neurotic people talk about basketball, success, beautiful day, God is good, and the like. Uh, so that, that, um, that tells you a sample in which I think personality tests will go by the wayside in uh, uh, the next decade, that you can actually kind of split the frontal lobes and look at what people think about. Uh, here's boys versus girls, males versus females. <laughs> uh, I was astonished. <laughs> so, um, what females talk about is my hair, a so shopping, my boyfriend. Uh, that's what boys talk about. That's what boys think about down there. And, and this, uh, uh, again, I think gives us, in a way in which uh, high and low testosterone don't tell us what boys and girls are about. This tells us what boys and girls are about. Well, so uh, what I've said so far is that well-being, to my way of thinking, uh, consists of PERMA positive emotion, engagement, good relationships, meaning, and accomplishment. And I've said it's measurable. It's not only measurable by questionnaire, but it's now measurable instantly across the world. And uh, so if uh, uh, the, the Premier of New South Wales is thinking about uh, building uh, new libraries in uh, uh, the Darling Harbour area, and he wants to know if it actually works, you can look at the engagement words before, during, and after. Uh, so it's a good test of, of uh, public policy. So let's now turn for about 20 minutes to the question, can you build it? Now, it's not trivial to ask, can you build psychological things? Um, there are a lot of things that can't be changed. Um, dieting, as you may know, is a scam. It's a... Uh, in the United States, it's a $50 billion scam. And the reason it's a scam is that any of you can 
lose uh, about 5% of your body weight in three weeks by following any diet on the bestseller list. Uh, I did the watermelon diet. <clears throat> uh, I lost about uh, uh, 20 pounds in three weeks. I, ha I had diarrhea for three weeks. <laughs> and um, uh, the, prob the reason it's a scam is 80 to 95% of people regain all that weight or more over the next three to five years. So the question about well-being is, can you actually build it in a lasting way, or is it just like dieting? You can boost it, and then it's going to go back where it was. And indeed, that, as I said before, was the reason I didn't work on the positive side of life, because I thought that happiness could actually not be changed. It could just be temporarily boosted. Well, it turns out that's wrong. And what I'm going to do now is go through uh, the five areas of PERMA for individuals. So this comes out of working with individuals. Then I'll turn to the question of groups and finally to national policy. So let's take P, positive emotion, feeling happy, optimistic. Uh, can it be boosted? Can it be changed? Um, so I'm going to do a couple of things here. Um, Barbara Fredrickson and Marcel Losada go into corporations, 60 American corporations, and they write, they record every word that's said. And they classify the words into positive and negative words, and then they relate this to how the corporation is doing economically. So it turns out there is a ratio of positive to negative words said that correlates with economic uh, status of corporations. So if your ratio is 2.9 to 1 or greater, positive words to negative words, then it turns out uh, your corporation is making a lot of money. It's flourishing. If it's between 2.9 to 1 and 1 to 1, it's going along. And if it's 1 to 1 or lower, the corporation is going bankrupt. Uh, so 2.9 to 1 seems to be a ratio that correlates with economic profitability. Don't take this home to your marriage. 2.9 to 1 doesn't work. Uh, uh, two of my colleagues, John and Julie Gottman, two of the leading marital therapists in the world, lock couples in an apartment for a weekend, and they listen to every word that's said and they compute the ratio of positive words to negative words, and they predict divorce. <laughs> if your ratio is below 5 to 1, it predicts divorce. Five positive things to every negative thing. Um, my uh, daughter, Nikki, uh, when she was 17 a couple of years ago, I came home excitedly uh, to dinner. I was talking about the Losada ratio and what an important thing that was. Uh, and then I went off to my computer to work. About 11 in the evening, uh, Nikki uh, came up to me and asked me to drive her to a party. It was a Thursday night. And I shouted at Nikki, get to work, party Thursday night, go do your homework. And Nikki said, Daddy, you've got a terrible Losada ratio. The reason I mention that, um, as parents, what's the ratio of 
positive things we need to say to our kids for them to hear us when we say a negative thing. So what's really going on with the Losada ratio is um, how much positive stuff do you have to do to make the negative stuff credible? So your child, your employee, uh, your mate doesn't dig her heels in and not hear what you're saying. So that's a discovery in this field that uh, is worth knowing about. And just uh, one thing about can you have more positive emotion in life? Well, it turns out you can. Uh, and uh, Brickman was wrong. And uh, uh, here's an, an assignment for you. Uh, every night for the next week, before you go to bed, write down three things that went well today and why they went well. These don't have to be big things. They can be a nice sunset you had, a, a very good glass of wine. So we assign, by the way, here's the way I should tell you how we do our research on what works and what doesn't work. So um, I'm a depressive and a pessimist. I believe only a pessimist can do serious work on optimism. Um, <laughs> and so when someone suggests a technique to me, I first do it on myself. I take my own medicine, and if it works on me, I give it to my wife, Mandy, and our seven children. And if it works on them, then we give it to my graduate students to start doing experiments on it. If it works on them, we try it in the clinic. We try it with mental illness. And if it works in those settings, then we put it up on my website, authentichappiness.org. If you go to the website, it sometimes says exercises. If you go there, it says uh, uh, Professor Seligman wants to find out if there are things you can do to actually boost your well-being and lower your depression. So if you're willing to do this, you're going to get one exercise. You won't know whether or not it's a placebo. And then we're going to bug you for six months to uh, uh, ask about anxiety, depression, happiness, and the like. And so um, uh, one exercise that's quite robust is uh, this three good things, hunt the good stuff exercise. And when we do that, relative to placebo, uh, two things emerge. Six months later, uh, you have higher life satisfaction and lower depression. But importantly, it's addicting. And, and I mention addicting here uh, because here, here's a, the dirty little secret of psychotherapy. I've been a psychotherapist most of my life. And in psychotherapy, you're working on people's weaknesses. When you work on people's weaknesses, people backslide. And the way we measure, this is the dirty little secret, the way we measure the success of any form of therapy is how long the improvement lasts after therapy is over till it melts to zero. And that indeed is the result of almost all psychotherapy. The better the therapy, the longer it lasts. But almost nothing that's done in psychotherapy, sadly, is self-maintaining forever. And that's because it's no fun to, if you're di it's no fun to keep turning down chocolate mousse. And that's the reason dieting fails. But it turns out that when you do a simple thing, such as uh, write down three things that went well today before you go to sleep, it turns out it's fun to do, you sleep better. Uh, when I started to do this about 12 years ago and uh, I don't write them down anymore, but I no longer go to sleep thinking about the fight I had with my dean. I go to sleep thinking about, oh, the, the, the 
uh, roses I got uh, for my rose garden and where, where, where am I going to plant them. Turns out you sleep better and it's addicting. It's fun to do. You just keep doing it. So the important distinction between the exercises that I'm mentioning today and psychotherapy generally is their self-maintaining. So that's a little bit on positive emotion, engagement. So um, we're very interested in the signature strengths of human beings. And if you go to that website, there's a test that two million people have taken. And it, what it tells you, uh, it's called the signature strength test, is what your five highest strengths are against about two million other people. Uh, and then, well, I'll, I'll do the assignment with you now. So close your eyes. Think about something you have to do at work at least once a week that you don't like doing. Okay, open your eyes. Okay, now I'm going to imagine you've taken the signature strengths test and you know what your five highest strengths are. So your assignment is next week do that task using your highest strength. Take a long cut around the task using what you're best in life at. Now, I'll give you an example so you can see what I mean. Uh, one of my students had to study in the library till midnight, and then from midnight till one in the morning would walk through the most dangerous part of West Philadelphia to get to his apartment. This was the worst part of his day. So uh, I gave him this assignment. His highest strength was humor and playfulness. So his job was to recraft the walk home using his highest strength. So what did he do? He uh, bought a pair of roller skates and a stopwatch. And he declared it an Olympic event. <clears throat> and he timed his, himself every night to beat his personal best. And then when he got really good, he would change, go on a longer route to you know, do the hurdles or whatever. And within about a month, this became the favorite part of his day. So uh, something new under the sun here, and that is finding out what your highest strengths are. These are different from your talents. They're things like kindness, gratitude, humor, social intelligence, and running your life around your strengths, not around the remediation of your weaknesses. Um, I should mention a little more about strengths. This was all developed by my colleague Chris Peterson, who died last October at age 62, a huge loss to positive psychology. Uh, these are the 24 strengths. And uh, I'll just tell you one other discovery in this area. I'm very interested in post-traumatic growth and post-traumatic stress disorder, as you'll hear about in about 15 minutes. Uh, we wondered who, when they undergo awful events, grows and who goes under. So what we did was uh, one month we uh, said, has something awful happened to you on the website? Within a couple of weeks, 1,700 people had answered saying one or more of the worst 15 things that can happen to a human being uh, had happened to them. And we measured their well-being and their strengths. And uh, our findings were very surprising. First, we found that people who had one awful event were stronger and had better well-being than people to whom nothing 
None of these events had happened. These are events like rape, held captive, tortured, uh, potentially lethal disease, and like death of a child, death of a spouse. Uh, then we found people who had two of these events were stronger than people who had one, and people who had three, now remember these people survived, they're on our website, they've come to it, were stronger than people who had two. And we asked the question then, this is, this is an example of uh, what Nietzsche told us, if it uh, doesn't kill us, it makes us stronger, which seems to be true. Uh, and then we asked the question, what strengths predicted the people who would grow? And here are the five strengths. Uh, religiousness, gratitude, kindness, hope, and bravery were the predictors of who would show the most uh, increases in well-being. Um, okay, so what we've done now is P and E. We're going to do R, relationships. Uh, how many of you here do marriage counseling or sexual therapy? A few of you. This is the worst form of therapy. Uh, it has the worst statistics. People are lying to you. They're lying to each other. Uh, sometimes they form an alliance in which they agree to hate you, and then things actually go better. Uh, and the reason marital therapy is so dismal uh, is not just the population, is that what you're trying to do in marital therapy, if you read the the marriage manuals, what I used to do when I taught marriage and sexual therapy, was you try to get people to fight more constructively. You don't want them to have the same damn fight every day about something, something else. Um, what you're trying to do in traditional marital therapy is to um, take insufferable marriages and make them barely tolerable. Um, <laughs> Now, that's not a positive psychology approach. So a very, in, a very inventive group of marital therapists, she Shelley Gable and her colleagues in California, said, let's not look at how people fight. Let's look at how people celebrate together. What do you say to your spouse when she comes home from work with a victory? So this is what they looked at, and this is what they now teach. Uh, she's been promoted at work comes home, she says she's been promoted. What do you say? Well, it turns out there are four categories of things you can say. What I used to do was passive constructive, which was, you know, congratulations, Mandy, you deserve it. No effect on the relationship. Um, I work with a lot of drill sergeants these days in the U.S. Army. I'll tell you about them in about 10 minutes. Um, passive destructive. You know what tax bracket your promotion's going to put us in? <laughs> That's active destructive. Passive destructive is what's for dinner. Now, the only thing that works, and it turns out when you teach people to do it, love and commitment and sexuality grow, uh, is active constructive. And it doesn't come naturally. Some of you, very few people have it naturally. And basically, it takes much longer. It takes sincerity and authenticity. But roughly, here's how it goes. Uh, you know, darling, I've been, been reading the reports you wrote to the company. Uh, 
the one you wrote three months ago on the pension plan is the best fiscal report I've seen in my 25 years of business. Now, would you relive the moment with me? Uh, exactly what did your boss, where were you when your boss told you you had been promoted? And she tells you. Now, exactly what did he say? Verbatim. What you're trying to do here is put her in touch with this great event that's occurred and why it occurred, she tells you. Now, what do you think the real reasons for promoting you were? What are the highest strengths that you have in the corporation? And she tells you. And how, how, can, how can you use those strengths more with the kids and with the community? Uh, and um, that's how the, and then uh, 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 let's, go, let's go to Benelong and celebrate. Uh, so it turns out when you do that, statistically, uh, love and commitment increase. And it, this is not only about marriage, it's about friendship, loyalty, and uh, corporate relations. Uh, so that's P-E-R-M, belonging to and serving something bigger than you are. Uh, human beings are, to my way of thinking, uh, not just pleasure seekers, that Dawkins' view of the selfish gene, I think, is wrong, that human beings are seekers of meaning, that we want to be part of something larger. And uh, uh, I work on depression a lot, and if you're one of the 15% of Australians right now who's depressed, and you want one thing to do that'll give you an antidepressive boost, it turns out it's go out and help another person. It turns out our hedonic system is wired for generosity. Uh, I'm not preaching here, I'm just telling you what the data look like. So uh, we have an exercise that we have young people do. Uh, adults don't need to do this as much, but kids don't know this. And it's the distinction between pleasure and philanthropy. So I assign my students to do something fun next week and to do something philanthropic, altruistic, and then to write up what happens. And what happens, and I'll just tell you emblematically, one of my students, uh, w when you do something fun, like shopping, going to the movies, hanging out with your friends, it has a square wave offset. That is, when it's done, it's done. When you do something altruistic, uh, something else happens. Uh, so one of my students, uh, her nine-year-old nephew called her on the phone during this assignment. It was her, her midterm week, and she needed to tutor him. She spent two hours tutoring him in fractions. And uh, uh, she said, after that, the, the whole day went better. I, I was mellow. I could listen to people. People liked me more. And then one of my business students said, I'm in the business school because I want to make a lot of money. And I want to make a lot of money. It's reasonable. Money brings happiness. It brings security. Brings contentment. Brings control. But I was astonished to find out that I was happier helping another person than I was shopping. And this turns out to be a human regularity. Important to know that. It's uh, the way we're built. So we've done P-E-R-N-M. And let me finally say something about achievement. Um, accomplishment. 
something we pursue for its own sake. Um, we, does Australia have spelling bees? No? Oh, you do, okay. So in the United States, we have two million kids enter the National Spelling Bee, and it gets whittled down to 168 of them who go to Washington, and they have a final spell-off in which they have to spell words like inchoate and the like, and uh, words that most of us can't spell. Um, and so uh, Angela Duckworth uh, took the IQ of all 168 kids and measured their self-discipline and their grit. By the way, the tests for grit and self-discipline are on the website. And it turns out she could predict the four finalists. They're the gritty kids, the high self-discipline kids. There's no effective IQ. And then we go to places, to high schools. We measure IQ and self-discipline uh, in year nine students. And then we measure the grades through year 12. And uh, we ask, what predicts good grades at school? And it turns out that self-discipline is about uh, double the amount of variance that's accounted for than IQ. Uh, talent and IQ are greatly overrated. Uh, Self-discipline, perseverance are underrated. It's a good thing because self-discipline is probably teachable and IQ is not. Uh, so what we've done so far then uh, is we've talked about uh, PERMA as the elements of well-being. We talked about how to measure it and we talked about what's new in these fields and how to build it. And uh, in my last 10 minutes, I want to say something about, is this more than just individuals? Can, can we do this writ large? Can we do it in organizations? Is it a plausible community goal? Is it a plausible national goal? So uh, there are now, I want, I consider the notion of positive education for a minute. Uh, if I asked you what you most wanted in life, two words or less, you, you would say fulfillment, happiness, well-being. And then if I asked you what schools teach, you would say numeracy, literacy, discipline, knowledge, conformity. And there's no overlap between the two lists, what you most want in life and what schools teach. And people for a long time thought it might be incompatible to teach kids about well-being and life satisfaction, be incompatible with learning. Well, it turns out there are now a couple of hundred schools around the world who are doing positive education. They're both teaching PERMA to kids starting early on. Uh, the first school to do it was Geelong Grammar in uh, Victoria. Uh, and it's spread around the world uh, just uh, last week in a, uh, something called PISA, the Positive Education Schools Association, was founded and 50 schools just from Australia uh, signed up immediately with no publicity. Um, it's a notion you can both teach life satisfaction to kids and you can teach the traditional goals of learning, uh, which are traditionally success in the workplace. And here's some data <coughs> from the school situation. So um, what this is about is ninth grade literature. So uh, you, you may remember from uh, your schooling what you're taught, what you read in ninth grade literature. Uh, Romeo and Juliet, Lord of the Flies, Scarlet Letter, Macbeth. 
uh, one tragedy after another. <clears throat> and if, if you wonder why there's an epidemic of depression in young people, but we weren't, we weren't after the canon here. What we did was that half the classes, <coughs> when they read Lord of the Flies, uh, that Friday they had 80 minutes on kindness and what's known about kindness. And then the next Wednesday, they'd have a homework assignment to do three kind things and to write it up. This went on for an entire year. And the other, the other uh, and when they talked about you know, Piggy and Lord of the Flies, they would talk about his strengths uh, and his weaknesses as well. And then through, uh, for the next two years, uh, we measured <coughs> how those kids were doing. And it turned out if you look and this is done blindly, so you don't, don't know whether or not the kids had positive psychology with literature or not. Uh, the kids who had positive psychology and literature, their social skills were higher than the ones who didn't, um, and their grades were higher. They could write better. Um, and uh, so this characterizes a, a lot of the work within schools. So we're beginning to believe that we can do positive education as a, a goal of education. It's, education can be not just paving the way to the workplace, but paving the way for more permanent in life. And um, then I had one of the most remarkable encounters of my life. This was about four years ago. Um, I was called to the uh, Pentagon by the Chief of Staff of the United States Army, George Casey. And uh, General Casey said to me, uh, suicide, post-traumatic stress disorder, panic, drug abuse, divorce. What does positive psychology say about that, Dr. Seligman? And so I said, sir, um, the human reaction to terrible adversity, combat, death of a child, losing your job, is bell-shaped. And you just described the left-hand side of the curve, the people whose lives are ruined by combat, and finding about 10% in the United States Army these days. And uh, my recommendation, sir, is that uh, you continue to spend five to $10 billion a year treating those people. But what's often forgotten, the great middle of the bell curve is people who are resilient. And resilient means they go through a very hard time in combat, but three months later, by all of our physical and psychological measures, uh, they're back where they were before the bad event. And then on the right-hand side of the curve is post-traumatic growth. Uh, people who go through often a terrible time in combat, but a year later, by our physical and psychological measures, are stronger than they were to begin with. Uh, my recommendation, sir, is to move the entire curve to the right. Whereupon General Casey did two uh, remarkable things. <clears throat> First, uh, unlike what you and I do in, in life in which when we have a good idea we have to cajole our friends into doing it, he ordered that from that day forward <laughs> uh, positive psychology and resilience would be measured and taught through the entire 1.1 million person army and that he would create an army that was just as psychologically fit as physically fit. And he allocated uh, $140 million to it. Uh, then he said something else, 
He said, uh, we've been reading your work about the schools, and we see you go into the schools and you teach the teachers the PERMA skills and how to use them in their own lives, and then the teachers teach the students, and you measure how the students do. You find less depression and more well-being in the kids. He said, well, that's the Army model, Dr. Seligman. We've got 40,000 teachers in the Army. He said, really? Said, yep, the drill sergeants. So your job, Dr. Seligman, will be to train all the drill sergeants in PERMA, resilience, and well-being, and they will train the entire army. And we will carefully measure what effect this has on suicide, on post-traumatic stress disorder, on uh, morale, on, on coping, and the like. And so uh, for the last three and a half years, every month 180 drill sergeants come to the University of Pennsylvania. And my faculty spends eight days with them, teaching them the skills that we talked about very briefly today. And uh, I can show you some of the, oh, here's a, another thing to be said about this. In order to uh, do comprehensive soldier and family fitness, we had to create a test which measured PERMA character strength. Usually the Army just measures mental illness and the like. So in, in addition, we're measuring uh, the strengths and virtues. And uh, so every soldier from private to general takes this test once a year. Uh, been taken a couple of million times now. And uh, one of the reasons it's very interesting is uh, every, there are 1,200 colonels every year who want to be promoted to brigadier general. Uh, only 33 of them are promoted. And so the question is, you know, promotion boards sit there and they select one out of 40 of these men and women. And the question is, can you predict who's going to be promoted? And the answer is robustly yes. Those of you who can read these statistics, these tell you how strong uh, uh, fitness dimensions like engagement and family satisfaction are on the probability of getting promoted general. So it turns out to be predictive of promotion. And uh, here's data from Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, the top curve are several thousand soldiers who had at least one drill sergeant in their battalion who is training positive psychology, or several thousand who did not have it. So this is rolled out gradually, so it's a pretty controlled experiment. And what we're looking at here is measures of positive coping during deployment in Iraq and Afghanistan. And what you can see here is uh, positive coping goes up even during combat, and it goes down in the control group. And uh, the Army has re recently officially concluded that that master resilience training is effective. So this brings me to my closing remarks, which are about politics. Uh, this is a highly political view. It is not a left-right political view. Uh, left-right, as I understand it, is who should do it? Should it be done by the state or should it be done by individuals? Uh, it's about it. It says that the it the success or failure of national policy is not notions like GDP, not notions like military conquest, not even notions like environmental sustainability, which I believe in, but the ultimate goal is PERMA, what 
nations are about, what public policy is about in this view, is the notion of more well-being for its citizens. Uh, and that's why it's different. It says the goal of politics is different from what we were raised for. Uh, and uh, indeed, this is catching on. The Prime Minister of England, uh, as I mentioned 30 minutes ago, has said that uh, he will hold himself accountable for the success or failure of public policy by changes in well-being, as well as changes in GDP. Um, is this a pipe dream? Is this, is this really plausible? Could the world be turning? Could politics be turning in this way? Well, when nations are poor and in famine and in plague and in social discord, it is perfectly natural that their first concerns should be about defense and about damage. But when nations are wealthy, not in famine, not in plague, in relative social harmony, what happens? Well, a best example historically of this is Florence of the uh, 15th century. As you know, in the uh, middle of the 15th century, Florence became uh, tremendously wealthy, uh, due mostly to Medici banking genius. And they asked the question, uh, what should we do with all this wealth? What should we do with this wealth? And the general said, let's go conquer the peninsula. Uh, Cosimo the Elder won, and he led Florence to invest its surplus in beauty. In, in beauty. Uh, they gave us what 200 years later was called the Renaissance. Uh, now, I'm not suggesting for a moment that uh, the European Union, Australia, uh, the United States should go out and do sculpture. Rather, I'm suggesting that our investment for the future should be in well-being. I've tried to define that today. Now, the, there's a lot of data on the relationship of wealth to well-being, and it's important that you know this. Below the safety net for individuals and for nations, the more money, the more well-being. Above the safety net, rapid diminishing returns. And it's the rapid diminishing returns that tells us that more and more wealth is not what the goal of public policy above the safety net should be. Um, I want to conclude by uh, reminding you of something in Nietzsche. Nietzsche said that human history was divided into three phases. The first phase was the camel. Most of human history, the camel just lies there and moans and takes it. Then Nietzsche says, starting around 1776, or Magna Carta, depending on what your view of human history, um, the lion or the rebel occurs. And the rebel says no. The rebel says no to slavery, no to poverty, no to disease, no to Sharia, no to racism, no to pollution. I think you have to be blinded by ideology not to realize that the politics of no has worked. That by almost every criterion we can think of, human life is better now in the last 50, the last 200 years than it was before. Steve Pinker's book 
Angels of Our Better Nature, documenting a 50-fold decrease in violence across 3,000 years is emblematic of this. Nietzsche asks, what if, the what if the politics of no were to work, really work, and done okay by now? Are there things that human, every human being can affirm? Is there a politics of yes? Is there something that every human being wants for themselves and their children, their community, and their nation? Uh, now remember, Schopenhauer and Freud told us there's only the politics of no, that life is only about reducing suffering and misery as close to zero as you can. But what I've contended today is that there is a new prosperity and a new bottom line. And that bottom line, which I think is coming, maybe not irreversible, but I think it's coming, is a bottom line in which we ask the question, how can we maximize PERMA for the world? for our lives, for our marriage, for our community. So I've contended today that every there are things, Nietzsche calls it the child reborn, that we can say yes to. That every human being can say yes to more positive emotion in life. Every human being can say yes to more engagement. The people you love at work and your leisure, all of us can say yes to more meaning and purpose in life. All of us can say yes to better relations, and all of us can say yes to more positive accomplishment. It is my belief that the world has turned. Not irreversibly, we may become a Bosnia again, we may be hit by a meteor, but all of our science, our literature, the Australian novel, as an example, has been about dystopias, about going under, about relieving misery and suffering. And that's fine. It's fine to have a tragic view of life. But if prosperity continues, and there's a good chance it may, then we need a psychology, a science, a way of looking at the world that embraces it. And what I've suggested to you today is the way of looking at the world our best hope for the future is more well-being. Thank you.